guys, if you want to turn in your Bibles, we're going to be in Romans chapter 9, I believe. And we have a few fun announcements and things I'm going to go over real quick, just kind of in addition to what we already talked about. So first off, um, how many of you are familiar with what AI is or know anything whatsoever about it? Maybe a little bit. So um, there is a seminar in town coming up uh, this weekend um, that we have scholarships for if you're interested. It's about AI, and it's about the basically the positives and the negatives of it. Um, if you're not familiar with AI, it's really going to be probably the conversation of the next decade. I mean, it is, a, it is a big deal. So if you're interested, you can grab one of these, learn more about it, even semi-interested, pass them down. If you're not, not a problem, so you can send those down. But a little seminar, if you are interested in it, let me know, um, because it does cost like about 30, 50 bucks, something like that to go, um, but we can scholarship you if you are interested in going. And then I'm just going to pass this around. Again, we're trying to memorize scriptures for Romans. Um, we're going to have a little quiz when we're all done with Romans, sort of in uh, May, I think is when we're going to do that. But I encourage you just to post this in your bathroom, somewhere you're going to look at it every day, and just work on memorizing the Roman road, and then of course, 1 Corinthians, the little paragraph on what uh, love is biblical love is good to memorize as well so if you don't have one of those grab one if not you can pass them down and then we have a few fun pictures for winter retreat this is the most important one you can see the famous clip two years in a row officially put on Rebecca Roach too bad she's not here to enjoy it but really good that's at our winter retreat next pictures Here's our crew from this last winter retreat. We all survived the cold, all 90 of us. A couple of them there. Here's a bunch of us. There's our youth group up there, quite a few people. Cabins, all the fun. Hunter shooting people in the dark. Worship, games, dodgeball. Lots of good stuff. All right, so encourage you, we'll get those uh, dates for July up there, but basically high school camp is the last full week in July, if you want to look ahead in your calendar, mark it on your calendar, last full week of July, and then junior high camp is the week right before that, so second to last week of July, you can mark it on your calendars. I did send out an email today, so your parents should get that with the dates in there as well, but we'll get the slide and get it up here for you as well as some take-homes to save the date. All right, we want to have you watch. Uh, the Bible Project does a really good job of explaining Romans, like really just big picture. It takes about eight minutes, so we're going to watch the second part of Romans here, um, chapter 5 through the end, and then I'll, we'll jump into what God has for us tonight. Paul's letter to the Romans. Check out the first video where we explored who Paul was and why he wrote this letter, and where we trace the core ideas of chapters 1 through 4. That all humanity is hopelessly trapped in sin and needs to be rescued. That this rescue is not going to happen by people trying to obey the laws of the Torah. Rather, God's righteous character has moved him to rescue the world through Jesus' death and resurrection so that he could create a faith-based, multi-ethnic family of Abraham as his people. Now, in the remaining three movements of the letter to the Romans, Paul is going to develop these ideas even more. So, remember, Paul's exploration of justification by faith 
that when people trust Jesus' death and resurrection was for them, they're given a new status, they're right with God, they're placed in a new family, the covenant people of Abraham, and they're given a new future, the hope of a transformed life. Now Paul wants to show how this reality should reshape every part of our existence because being in this family means being a part of a new humanity that God is creating through Jesus and the Spirit. So Paul goes back to the first human character of the biblical story, Adam. His name means humanity. And Adam, like all humanity after him, has chosen sin and selfishness. And so everyone faces God's judgment because we've become slaves to sin's influence resulting in death. But then Paul contrasts Adam with Jesus, who he says is the new Adam, a human who lived in faithful obedience to God, shown through his act of sacrificial love. And now Jesus offers his life as a gift to others so that they can be justified before God. And so Jesus stands as the head of a new humanity that is being transformed by this gift, which leads him to chapter 6. Paul reminds these Christians in Rome that choosing to follow Jesus means leaving their old Adam-like humanity and entering into the new Jesus-like humanity. And their baptism was a sacred symbol of that transition. Their old humanity died with Jesus, and their new humanity was raised with him from the dead. So when a person trusts in Jesus, their life becomes joined to his life. What's true of him is now true of them. It's when people accept their identity as Jesus-like humans that they are liberated to become the wholehearted humans who can truly love God and their neighbor. Now, if creating this new humanity was always God's purpose, Paul asks in chapter 7, what then was the point of God giving Israel the law, or in Hebrew, the Torah? Now, side note, when Paul uses this word law, he sometimes means the storyline and message of the first five books of the Bible, but other times he's more specifically referring to the hundreds of commands given through Moses and that are found in the Torah. The second meaning is Paul's focus here. What was the purpose of all those commands? Paul says that the commands of the Torah were good. They showed God's will for how Israel was to live. But if you read the storyline of the Torah, Israel broke all those commands. The more laws Israel received, the more they replayed the sin of Adam and rebelled. So even when God gave his people specific moral rules to obey, that did not fix the problem of the sinful human heart. And so paradoxically, these rules made Israel even more guilty. But, Paul says, that paradox is the point. God's goal was to make it crystal clear that it's evil that's hijacked the human heart and that the Torah, good as it is, could not do a thing about it. But, Paul says in chapter 8, the solution has arrived in Jesus and the Spirit. And here's how. The commands of the Torah acted like a magnifying glass. It focused the problem of the human condition into one place, the people of Israel. But now Israel's representative, Jesus the Messiah, has paid for and dealt with all of that sin through his death and his resurrection. And now Jesus has released his spirit into his new family to transform their hearts so that they can truly fulfill the call of all the Torah's commands to love God and neighbor. And there's more. God's renewal of human beings is the first step of his larger mission to rescue and renew all of creation, making it a place where his love gets the final word. Now you can see how chapters 1 through 8 are one long flow of thought here, but it raises some other questions. 
If all of this was God's purpose, what is the current status then of Paul's fellow Israelites who don't acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah? How does this story fulfill God's promises to them? Well, Paul begins in chapter 9 with his own anguish over fellow Israelites who don't think Jesus is their Messiah. And it leads him to reflect on Israel in the past from the Old Testament story. And he reminds us that simply being an ethnic Israelite, a physical descendant of Abraham, never made one automatically a faithful member of the covenant family. Paul shows us how God has always selected a subset from Abraham's family to carry on the line of promise. And his point is that now that line of promise is carried on by those who follow Jesus. He reminds us that for a long time, people inside and outside Abraham's family have rejected God's will. He reminds us of the story of Israel and the golden calf and of Pharaoh's rebellion. He shows us how God was able to orchestrate events so that people's rejection of him actually accomplished his redemptive purposes. And so in chapter 10, Paul turns his focus to Israel in the present. The reason many Israelites reject Jesus is because they're basing their covenant relationship with God on their performance of the commands in the Torah. And so sadly, they don't recognize what God has done through Jesus to create a new covenant family on the basis of faith. And so Paul asks in chapter 11, what is Israel's future? Has God written off his people? No, he says. There are tons of Jewish people, including himself, who do recognize Jesus as their Messiah, but there are also a lot who don't. But God has been able to use their rejection for his own purposes. It's caused the gospel to spread even quicker and farther into the Gentile world, making the family of Abraham even larger and more multi-ethnic. Paul describes God's covenant family as a big olive tree, and the rejectors of Jesus have been broken off, so to speak, and these Gentiles are like wild branches that have been grafted into the family tree. However, Paul says, one day Jesus will be acknowledged by his own people. He doesn't offer any details about how. Paul simply trusts God's character and promise that he won't give up on his covenant people, which transitions into the final section of the book, chapters 12 through 16. But remember the big picture. Because of their faith in Jesus, Jews and Gentiles are now together Abraham's family, that new humanity that's being transformed by God's spirit. And so this is how God's fulfilling his ancient promises. Therefore, the only reasonable response is for these Jews and non-Jewish Christians to be unified as the church. In chapters 12 to 13, he shows that this unity will come from a commitment to love and forgive each other. Love will look like everybody using their diverse gifts and talents to serve one another in the church. And it will also mean humility and forgiveness. When these different ethnic groups and cultures come together in Jesus— Conflict is inevitable, and it can only be overcome through the hard work of forgiveness and reconciliation. This is how they will show the greatest of Christian virtues, love, which fulfills the Torah's greatest commands to love God and love your neighbor as yourself. In chapters 14 and 15, he focuses specifically on the issues that are creating ethnic divisions in the Roman church. These are disputes about the Jewish food laws and the Sabbath. And Paul says these practices don't define who's in or out of Jesus' family. And if people differ over these culturally important but non-essential issues, they need to learn how to respect each other's differences. And it's in this way that love will heal and unify Jesus' family. Paul closes the letter by first commending Phoebe, who's a key leader in the church of Kenkre. 
She had the honor of carrying and perhaps even reading this letter aloud to the Roman churches for the first time. Paul then concludes by greeting all the people that he hasn't seen for a long time, and that's the end. Whoa. You can see better now how all the pieces of this letter fit together and show what a profound masterpiece it truly is. That's what the letter to the Romans is all about. All right, so if you're not familiar with Gospel Project, um, they do a really good job with a lot of books of the Bible. So, for example, whenever you go to read like Mark or you want to read Leviticus or you want to read David or whatever, they have a video on literally every book of the Bible. It can give you just a nice overview. So if you ever want to just do that with Romans again to get a good picture of it, um, it's Gospel Project. Hit the, the book in, and it has every book in the Bible. You can watch it on YouTube. They do a good job. All right, so we're going to do a speed review here of Romans chapter 9, as we or what we've talked about so far. So again, chapter 1, Paul invites us to be into his apostolic ministry, which means basically he invites us to start ministries with him. In particular, again, he's inviting us to start ministry to Rome and off to Spain where he hopes to go. Chapter 2 is about being spiritually circumcised of heart, rather than being physically circumcised. And the importance of, again, a change of heart rather than just outward change. And this theme is going to continue to come up in Romans in different ways. He's going to reword it over and over and over again. Chapter 3, verse 11, he has that famous line that says, There is no one righteous, not even one. Everyone is naturally a sinner. No one even tries to be righteous. Chapter 4, he goes on and he talks about the emphasis of spiritual, again, circumcision of the heart and that good deeds will follow a heart transformation. In other words, God's, again, more concerned about our heart than he is necessarily outward behavior because he knows if he really captivates our heart, the outward behavior will follow. Chapter 5, is again, starts off with those three sermons right off the bat. Um, it talks about being justified by faith, just like Father Abraham, so that no one can boast. That God gets the credit. He talks about us dealing with suffering, you know, some of these hard topics, and that through suffering, we actually become more like Christ. Not exactly a popular theme, but it's accurate. That's why, remember, Jesus was called the suffering servant. And he talks about God pouring his love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Verse 8, chapter 5, verse 8, again, another really popular verse on your notes to memorize. While we were st still sinners, Christ died for us, which again, of course, begs that huge question, well, why? Why would Christ die for us while we're still sinners, while we're not deserving of forgiveness. And he spends the rest of Romans answering that question. Chapter 6, he talks about how we're going to make a decision, a willful choice to either be a slave to Christ and righteousness or a slave to sin and disobedience. Chapter 7, he talks about the internal spiritual struggle between our flesh and our thinking and our spirit that all of us face a spiritual battle. Chapter uh, 8, which uh, Colby, Colby talked about um, last week, has a few different themes. One about holy adoption, being basically spiritually adopted and being more than a conqueror with Christ. And about how we suffer now, but receive um, glory later, which Kelby really focused on. You know, I was thinking of this idea of suffering now, which again, a lot of these themes keep repeating. Because he talked about suffering in chapter 5. And he brings it back up again in chapter 9. Almost every single thing he talks about, he's going to mention about in three different parts of Romans in different ways. I remember years ago, um, Gary Mastorf at Faith Chapel, I don't know if anybody's ever been in their big uh, sanctuary there, but he had a big rope 
um, a navy rope go across the front of the sanctuary. You know, one of those big ropes that are like this big that come on ships that, you know, people use for like anchors and that kind of thing. So a really big, you know, thick rope about the size of somebody's head all the way across the sanctuary. And he put a little bobby pin in the middle of it. And he said, this is your life in light of eternity. Right? It's this little tiny pinprick in the light of, you know, basically human history. That's, that's our kind of our story. And if you think about it, if you kind of take that analogy, you know, if you took that rope and you wrapped it all the way around this room, you know, 10 or 20 times, and you put a little pinprick in it, that's what Paul's saying. He's saying, listen, you're going to suffer this small amount of time, and the rest of the time, if you give your life to Christ and you live for him, you're going to be celebrating in his glory for all of eternity. Like he's trying to put it in perspective. Remember, Paul's this crazy guy who goes on and remember all the things he goes through. He gets, he gets shipwrecked. He gets beat or almost killed with stones four different times, I think. He gets beaten like nine times. He gets robbed repeatedly. He has to flee for his life from three different towns. He has all this crazy stuff that happens to him. He gets bitten by a snake and everybody thinks he's going to die. Right? He goes through all of this suffering for Jesus. And it's because he has this mentality that it's like it's not that big of a deal. My, my life is this little print prick. I get to spend all of eternity with Jesus in heaven, being rewarded for everything I do that's faithful. So Paul keeps his mind. Remember he says in Galatians, for example, run the race in such a way that you might win the prize. Right? He's living his life not thinking about the present suffering, but he's thinking about the future glory to come. Does that make sense? So if you think about that, it's like when you're running a, a marathon. You know, If you're running a marathon and all you're thinking about is, Oh, this is miserable. Oh, this step hurt. Oh, that step hurt. Oh, this step hurt. Oh, my muscle hurt. You know, and you're going like that. It's going to be a hard race. You're not going to be able to finish probably. Right? But if you're thinking about, you know, I'm going to thinking about that finish line, how it's going to finish, what's going to feel like to be done, what's going to feel like to accomplish that, it's going to be a lot easier. You know, so it's kind of a mental thing. What is your mind focused on? Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8, think, don't focus on your present suffering so much. Think about the future glory. It makes present suffering so much easier to go through. There is a purpose in suffering. It helps us be more Christ-like, and it actually helps us become the people Christ wants us to be. So he comes out of this theme in chapter 8 into chapter 9, what we're going to talk about today. And this is where, and they, as they mentioned the story, he really starts to lament over Israel's situation in chapter 9, 10, and 11 where he starts to kind of grieve the nation of Israel and how poorly they're responding to the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? It's sort of like somebody who really wants to live for Jesus, but, and they're trying to convince their family, but their family's not responding to the gospel, right? It grieves them of heart. This is the same thing Paul's going through. He's like, my friends, my neighbors, my community, they're not responding to Jesus like I want them to be able to respond. Like, they should get this, but they're slow to respond. So this is kind of where this begins. He begins to lament this. But it's purposeful because, again, Paul realizes Israel is not receiving the gospel very well. And Paul realizes he only has so much time. And so he doesn't want to, if you would, waste his time pounding on the doors of Israel over and over and over again and getting nowhere. So he's like, I'm going to go to Rome. Because Rome is, again, I don't know if you, how much you know about Rome, but Rome was like three times the size of any other city in the world at the time. You imagine if like Tokyo today, it's the largest city in the world, was three times as big as it is now. That would make it enormously influential, right? Economically, politically, religiously, in every single way. So Rome is just 
the most influential city that really at this time in Paul's life, and it's going to actually become more influential for the next couple hundred years, but it's the most influential city the world's ever seen because it was so much bigger than everything else and everything was centered in it. There is no city today in the world that's like, like it. I mean, New York City is probably the most influential single city, nothing compared to how Rome would have been, right? So again, Paul's like, I'm going to go to Rome. Because he understands if he can convince a lot of Romans to live for Jesus, it's going to change the entire globe. right? Rather than spending the rest of his life banging on the doors of Israel trying to get them to convince. So this is, again, where he's writing this letter because he has the big end mission in mind. He wants to make as big of a difference as he possibly can with his life. And he realized the ticket to do so really is going to come down to how do the Romans respond to the gospel of Jesus. And so it begins with his Roman letter to pave the way for his ministry to Rome. All right, it begins in verse 1. And he says, I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed, cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption. There's the defined glory, the covenants, and the receiving of the law, right? Israel has all of these things going for it. The temple worship and all the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, right? The fathers of faith. From them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, whom God is over all forever praised. Amen, right? So again, he's beginning this lament over Israel's not getting it like they should, right? These should be the people who are most excited for the gospel of Jesus, but they're not responding like the way he expects them to, right? They have all these advantages. They have the historical adoption. They have generational history and understanding. They have covenants of old, right? They have bearers of the law. They have had revelation through angels for generations. They have the prophets of old. They have the temple in Jerusalem, but yet they're not responding to the gospel like we hoped. Everyone in Israel says and claims they're waiting for the Messiah, but few actually recognize him when he comes. It's interesting, isn't it? The only thing I can think of to, to put it in perspective that's even maybe kind of close is like in America, everyone claims to advocate for freedom, but few might stand up for it. Right? Everyone claims that they are waiting for the Messiah, but very few recognize him when he comes and even fewer are willing to actually go and live for him and even fewer are willing to go like Paul and to sacrifice for him right so Paul laments kind of this if you would cold-hearted attitude towards the Messiah because they struggle with the same thing we do we want to make God a reflection of us rather than become a reflection of him and they want to make Jesus look more like them, and he looks so different than them that they don't recognize him. And so they struggle with this idea. Right, again, in our setting, the most similar thing I can think of is if like a kid grows up in a Christian home and the parents lament that they're not responding to the gospel. They're not living for Jesus like they know they should, right? This is Paul's story. He feels like a father with Israel, and he's like, Israel knows better, but they're not living for Jesus, and he begins to again lament this feeling, this cold heartedness towards God. 
But we have to remember whenever we're struggling with something like that, we're struggling maybe with a friend that we want to become like Jesus, when we're struggling with maybe a kid or a sibling that we want to have live for God, we need to remember that God is still in control. He's still all-knowing. He's still all-powerful. He's still ever-present. He still has without limitation. So Paul, again, he begins this lament as he begins to transition how he's going to be spending his energy and his focus. He begins in verse 6 again, and he says, it is, is it not through God's word? It is not, though, as God's word has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the natural children who are God's children, but it is children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will, I will return, and Sarah will have a son. Right? He says God's word is true for everyone. Right? God's word does not fail anyone, is what Paul's saying. John chapter 3, verse 16 to 17 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. God did not send his Son to condemn the world. The world was already condemned. But he sent his Son to save the world through him. Right? So God's word is true to everyone. It doesn't fail. This truth is truth. And being a son of Abraham is what he's saying to the Israelites doesn't mean what you think it means. You must be spiritually adopted, not just physically adopted. Right? He's going back to, again, how is your spirit? That's what matters more. Right? Again, kind of circling back, if in a way, hinting at this argument again, the spiritual circumcision of the heart is what really matters. He goes on in verse uh, 10 and 15. I'm not going to read it all, but he talks about he compares this promise, this idea of descendant versus birthright, right? Who gets the bigger inheritance? And he circles around it and says that everybody gets an inheritance. But again, those who are, who are going to get the greater blessing are those who are spiritually surrendering to Jesus. Okay, that's kind of where he's, he goes with that. I'm going to pick it up in verse 16, chapter 9. It says, it does, it does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's great mercy for the scripture says to pharaoh i raised you up for this very purpose that i might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth therefore god has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden okay so again many uh, theologians will say for again that god is kind of he's, he's looking at the condition of your heart that's what god's looking for Somebody whose heart is lined up with him, just like he looked for David. Remember when he anointed David for king? He anointed David because he was after God's own heart. Right? Like we talked about up at winter retreat. Right? So he's looking for a humble heart. And if he finds a humble heart that wants to serve the Lord, then he grants that person mercy. And when he finds a proud heart, like Pharaoh, what does he do then? He actually partners with their proud heart and he further hardens their heart. Do what he allows them to double down. So it's almost like this big dividing line based on the condition of the heart. Right? If you have a humble heart, then God helps you become even more humble and respond to the gospel. If you have a proud heart, then he allows you to follow, go down that road and become even more proud and more unwilling to learn or respond. Right? And either way, Paul says, God ends up getting the glory because the humble heart receives mercy 
And that humble person responds in worship to God, thanksgiving to God, reflection of God. God gets glory from that. And the proud heart, that person inflicts through their own natural choices self-inflicted misery. Now, they might be successful on the outside, but internally with their heart, they become very miserable, right? And eventually, they give glory to God, or God receives glory in a different way through that. And often through their own mistakes and their own kind of poor choices in life, people are, look at them and be like, I don't want to live that way. And through, because of that, it actually points people to Jesus in a different way. So some look like Jesus, reflect Jesus' humility, his character, and his forgiveness, and people are attracted to that and want to be like, give their life to the Lord and want to live for Jesus, and Jesus receives glory. And others, through a hard heart, people are like, I don't want to live like that, and are attracted to the Lord that way. All right, we continue in verse 19. It says, One of you will say to me, Then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? But who are you, a mere human being, to turn talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, Why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for disposal of, of refuse? Right, so God in his great foresight, again, he, he gives everybody an assignment. Right? We see that in, in Jeremiah, for example, it says that you know, God has a plan and a purpose for our life. For each and every single person, we know that God has a plan and a purpose for us. Each and every single person are created uniquely. You know, he says in Matthew, he knows the numbers of hair on our head. He pays very close attention to us. We know through science and forensics, every single person has a different fingerprint. Every single person has a different DNA. Right? God created us incredibly uniquely with a plan and a purpose for each of our lives. But not everybody has the same assignment. You know, I've finished reading, I don't know, how many, how many like biographies? Anybody here like biographies? A couple of you. All right, good. So I finished reading this 1,000-page George Washington biography. I really like, you know, history. And I like learning from leaders through their, their stories. And I was thinking of him being a good example for this. Not every soldier in the Revolutionary War and Continental Army could be George Washington. Correct? You can only have one commander-in-chief, right? You can only have one George Washington, right? And when you read his story, there were about 10 other major generals, very influential generals in that war. There's about 1,000 other high-ranking officers, and there's about 100,000 soldiers. Every single person is important and needed, but not every single one has the same assignment. Not every single one can be George Washington, right? All of those generals are important. All those officers are important. All those soldiers are important. Paul's saying the same thing. We all have an assignment. Not everybody's assignment's the same, right? Not everybody can be the president of the United States. Not everybody can be a senator. Not everybody can be a business owner. Not everybody can be a pastor, right? Whatever. Not everybody can be each and everything, a scientist, whatever. Nobel Prize winner. But everybody has an important assignment to fulfill. Right? This is what Paul's kind of talking about. goes on in verse 22. He's, what if God, although choosing to show us his wrath and make his power known, bore the great patience and objects of his wrath, prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles? As he says to Hosea, 
I will call them my people who are not who are not my people. I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called children of the living God. Isaiah cries out to Israel. Though the number of Israelites will be like the sand on the sea, only the remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. It is just as Isaiah had previously said previously, unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have been like Sodom and Gomorrah. All right, who remembers what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah? Any students remember? Sodom and Gomorrah. What happened to Sodom and Gomorrah, Harmony? Yep. All right, burned up, basically, sulfur. You know, God just struck him down. It was a super wicked city that he, cities that he made an example of. You know, a lot of times in the Old Testament, if you would, sort of the punishment was extreme because he wanted to make an extreme example so people wouldn't do it, right? So that's what happened in to Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay, so he's saying a few things. I just want to kind of reword some of this in our modern language. So a lot going on, right? He talks about several things going on here. End times things, the wrath of God. He's talking about the adoption of God, the love of God, the being chosen by God, receiving the mercy of God. There's a lot packed into this passage, but a couple things I just want to highlight. First of all, Paul says that God is actually keeping his wrath at bay. He himself is withholding his wrath. In other words, he's saying we actually, by sin, remember Romans chapter 3, verse 11, no one is righteous, not even one. He's saying we all actually deserve Sodom and Gomorrah's punishment. Remember, we are justified by faith, Romans chapter 5, like Father Abraham. It is a gift of God, he says in Ephesians to us. Right? So we deserve a punishment like Sodom and Gomorrah. We deserve the wrath of God. But God says, out of his loving kindness to us, he withholds his wrath. You know, it's kind of like when you've ever, ever really made your, your parents really, really angry. And then maybe they're like red-faced and they don't do anything because they're so mad and they wait a little bit maybe to come talk to you. That's what God's saying. He's saying sin makes him so incredibly angry. You deserve punishment like Sodom and Gomorrah. But because of his great love for you, he withholds his wrath. That makes sense? He's saying, listen, our actions deserve for us to be wiped out, to be utterly punishment. That's the punishment that we deserve. No one is righteous, not even one. And God says, listen, my people are not Israel. That's what Paul's saying. They're not really just the Jews, the Gentiles, right? That's, now, they have the inheritance. They should, should be. But he's saying, listen, we God is identifying his people not by some outward trait, right? Not by some race, not by some ethnicity, not by some kind of specific pigmentation, right? There is no hint of race in Christianity. And this is where Paul first really begins to bring it up. Which is, ironically, it this statement and this idea that Paul brings up really ticks the Jews off. Because their story and their history is they're a special people set apart by God, right? They've been chosen by him, this specific ethnicity, the Jewish people, the ethnic Jews, right? They're God's chosen people. And Paul says, nope, 
you've rejected Jesus, and so Jesus is going to open up the family like he talked about in the video. These, gra- these uh, olive branches are going to be grafted in, and his real people are going to be those that respond to Jesus. Right? And he opens it up to every pigmentation. It's not no longer an ethnicity that gets you in or has a special privilege. It's the condition of the spiritual of your the condition of your heart. Are you spiritually circumcised of heart? Are you willing to be transformed of heart by the Lord? Right? And so Paul again he, he brings this up and he's going to repeatedly bring this up through Romans and as well as he does some other epistles. All right, we're going to wrap up here in verse, chapter, our last few verses here. He says, What then shall we say? That the Gentiles who do not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith? But the people of Israel who pursued the law as their way of righteousness have not attained their goal? Why not? In chapter 11 and 10 are really going to bring this out even more. Because the, they pursued it not by faith, but as if they were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written. See, I lay in Zion a stone that causes my people to stumble, a rock that makes them fall, and the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. Now, remember in earlier uh, chapters in Romans, Paul was talking about the purpose of the law is to highlight our need for Jesus. Nobody can follow. Remember we talked about that? Nobody can follow absolutely every rule in your house you're eventually going to mess up. Nobody can follow absolutely every rule in your school. Eventually, you're going to mess up. Nobody can follow absolutely every rule in your church. Nobody can follow absolutely every rule while driving. Nobody can follow absolutely every rule of the state or the federal government, etc. Right? The purpose of the law is shows us that we cannot be perfect. Right? And that we are short of God's perfect standard. And so it highlights our need for Jesus. And he said the problem with Israel is they've put so much focus on the law, they've missed the Messiah and the gift. And these Ten Commandments, these stones, have become a stumbling stone for them. That's what he's referring to. All these laws written in stone have become a stumbling stone for Israel. Right? And Israel... Maybe if today, if we act like an Israeli, we'd say, well, listen, I go to church, I sing all the songs, I make my offerings, I sound like a Christian, right? I act really good, I show up on Sunday morning and Wednesday night, I'm all good. It's the mind of an Israeli. It's all doing all these things. Nothing wrong with those things. Right? But Paul's like, no, that's not the main point. Jesus cares more, doesn't care as much about your lingo and how you sound as he does the condition of your heart. He doesn't care more about your money than he does the convictions. He cares more about the convictions of your heart. He cares more about the loyalty of your heart than he does whether or not you have exact proper behavior. Right? Those things will come. So again, he kind of reiterates these things of the heart reminds me of the scripture for out of the overflow of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks right in other words your true convictions of your life will eventually come out of your heart those things matter which we'll get into more in chapter 10 but he wants us to realize that he's asking this kind of question what really makes you 
be adopted into God's household? Is, that you, is it that you have the right ethnicity and the right history? Or is it the condition of the heart and the confession of your mouth? Let's pray and then we'll break up into our small groups to talk about it. Lord Jesus, thank you for tonight. Lord, thanks that everybody that's here. Lord, thank you for this letter from Paul. Um, even though it's written in, obviously, language from a long time ago and a very legal language, Lord, there's a lot of depth to it. Lord, I pray you would help each student here just grasp it, Lord, and what you want us to get out of it. Lord, I pray that we would be humble of heart and would be teachable. Lord, I pray you'd keep pride uh, as far from us. Um, Lord, I pray that we would be a, a godly and biblical community that Paul talks about here and open to your gospel, open to your spirit, open to your leading. Lord, help us be hungry for, um, like Paul, Lord, that we would be hungry for those who are far from you, that we would want to take a risk, join Paul and join you in the apostolic ministry, Lord, of joining in on a new thing, Lord, and sharing the gospel with others, Lord. Help these students to memorize these Roman scriptures and to be able to share them with their friends when opportunity presents itself. Lord, I pray you would transform our hearts, the core tenet of Romans, to be more like you. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen.